I'm Gene Demby. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji, and this is Code Switch. From NPR. Today on the podcast, we're trying to answer a question. How did a police killing in Minneapolis, Minnesota, lead people thousands of miles away and across an ocean to pull down a statue of a slave trader who's been dead for nearly three centuries? That's what happened in early June in the English port city of Bristol. You might have seen the videos. Two weeks after George Floyd's killing, protesters there toppled the statue of a man named Edward Colston. The crowd of protesters cheered. A few pushed and pulled and rolled the now spray-painted statue toward the harbor. And then... That story is a reminder of how much influence events here in the U.S. have overseas and how some other countries are grappling with the same issues we are. Over the past couple of months, NPR's London correspondent Frank Langfitt and producer Sophie Eastaw have been talking to people in Bristol to try and answer the question we posed at the very beginning of this episode. They also looked at the relationship police have with Black people in Britain and why British cops have handled anti-racist protests much more peacefully than cops have in the U.S. We now go to Bristol for a special international episode of Code Switch. Frank Langford, welcome to Code Switch. Hey, Gene. Hey, Shireen. Great to be here. Tell us where you are. Yeah, so right now I'm actually in the heart of Bristol, and I'm standing next to the pedestal that held the Colston statue for about 125 years. Mm-hmm. Bristol, just so people know, it's in the southwest of England. It's about a 90-minute high-speed train ride uh, out from London. So for those of us in the States who have never heard of Edward Colston, what is the big deal here? Well, it's really interesting. Colston was Bristol's biggest philanthropist. And actually, I think a lot of people outside of Bristol would not have heard of him. Hmm. Uh, But here in the city, his name was all over the place. The concert hall behind me, Colston Tower, which is is overlooking the statue or what used to be the statue. Um, Schools, streets, all named after the guy. And until recently... There was, as Shireen was mentioning, this big bronze statue of him. It stood more than eight feet high uh, over the square. And and I was actually, I was walking in today, there's this plaque that's still there. No one has torn it off yet that calls him, quote, one of the most virtuous and wise sons of the city. (laughs) One of the things that plaque never mentions is that Colston made a chunk of his fortune in the late 17th century shipping enslaved people across the Atlantic in in exchange for sugar uh, to sweeten the coffee and the tea that's such a part of British culture. Hmm. Well, people in Bristol have been battling over this Colston statue for years. Take us back to that day in early June when it was torn down. Yeah, so this was like two weeks after George Floyd was killed and thousands of people came out in the city. Uh, A group of protesters made their way right down here. A few of them had ropes with them. And I was talking to a guy who was in the crowd that day. His name is Jaden Marston. Um, He's actually from Oregon and was here with his dad uh, living in the UK. The march stopped and I was like, wait, what's happening? And then loads of people were gathered around the Colston statue. It wasn't just black people. It was literally just like both people, white and black people just together, just pulling down a statue. And so Sophie and I, when we were here, we were talking to a variety of people about what happened that day. And one was a guy named Michael Jenkins. He's a documentary filmmaker. And he describes the scene after the statue hit the pavement. It was a feeling of euphoria, excitement. It was very emotional. You felt lots of different emotions. I mean, being there, seeing people jumping on the statue 
screaming like this is for our ancestors. It was like a weight was lifted off our shoulders. We don't have to walk past it every single day. As a mayor of the city, I cannot condone criminal damage, but the statue was an affront to me. I am of Jamaican heritage and it is possible that Colston had owned, kidnapped, and made money off of one of my ancestors. So I don't mourn its passing. I had palpitations. My chest went tight. I was, for a good hour, I was reeling. But I thought, that's amazing. That's an amazing piece of history happening right before my very eyes in my own city. So in addition to Michael, you just heard from uh, Yvonne Mina. She was a protest organizer. Marvin Reese, he's Bristol's mayor. He describes himself as mixed race. He's a very interesting guy. We're going to hear from more. And Mike Norton, he's the editor of the local newspaper, the Bristol Post. So why did the people who were out there that day say that the killing of George Floyd have such an impact there? Well, some of the factors are going to be very familiar to people in the States. They're very similar. Um, the audacity of that killing, of course, power of social media, pent-up frustration and fear because people here were in lockdown as well. Mm -hmm. But there's a specific gene context with Bristol that's really interesting. You know, activists had spent years trying to get the statue removed or put up another plaque explaining Colston's slaving past, and they had, it was like zero progress. So Floyd's killing unleashed kind of what had been brewing racial frustration here, and frankly, Colston's statue just became a big target. Hmm. So were there other factors specific to Bristol? Yeah, there were. You know, when you talk to people and you try to dig a little deeper, some people talk about the shared history of black people on either side of the Atlantic. Uh, they, they said that that also figured into this. Right. Yes. And you must be Michael. Yes, I'm Michael. Yes, nice, nice to, to meet you guys. You. Yes, you're right. So Michael Jenkins, that, that uh, documentary filmmaker I was talking about, he sees a connection between the killing of George Floyd in America with the state-sanctioned slave trade here centuries earlier. From this dock, set sail, you know, ships that would then go on to um, embark on this, you know, horrific trade. These waters uh, have a really significant part to play in the movement of African people, both to, to the Americas, to the Caribbean. So, so Colston was the deputy governor of the Royal African Company, and, and they had a monopoly on the African slave trade here. And when Colston was with the firm, it shipped tens of thousands of enslaved people to the Caribbean. Um, an estimated one in five died on the crossing and were, were tossed overboard. Now here's Michael Jenkins again. Living in Bristol, we understand the history of the city and, you know, the issues that the city has with even acknowledging the part it played in the genocide of, of black people through the slave trade. You know, and Jenkins says the killing of George Floyd, from his perspective, it's really a reminder of the past. It just brings back all the things that you're taught about as far as, you know, the state versus black people around the world. Now, Marvin Reese, the mayor, he says the killing resonated as well because of the modern connections between African-Americans and black Britons. Many prominent African-Americans are heroes to black people in the UK. Frederick Douglass, Paul Robeson, Martin Luther King, Muhammad Ali was one of the first names I knew as a young kid growing up. So we've got to recognize the profile that there is to African-American history and culture around the world. It's huge. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about how transatlantic family ties play into this story. And we're also going to discuss how police officers do their jobs in the UK versus the US.
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Brooklinen, offering high-quality luxury sheets at an affordable price. Brooklinen sheets come in a variety of colors, patterns, and materials, including classic percale, luxe sateen, linen, and heathered cashmere. They also offer duvets, blankets, and extra pillowcases, everything you need to live your most comfortable life. Get 10% off your first order and free shipping with promo code NPR only at brooklinen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor New Belgium Brewing and its flagship Fat Tire Amber Ale. Without healthy rivers, forests, and soils, it's impossible to brew great beer. For nearly 30 years, Fat Tire has been working to reduce its impact and protect the land and water that make great beer possible. Fat Tire is now proud to say it is America's first certified carbon-neutral beer. Join Fat Tire and learn more at drinksustainably.com. On Facebook, there are these three brothers who love guns, say guns are overregulated, say the NRA is too quick to compromise. And they're gaining more followers every day. They're very in-your-face and offensive, and by God, I love them for it. (laughs) Listen now to the No Compromise podcast from NPR. Jean. Shireen. Frank. Code switch. Before the break, we were talking about how historic and cultural connections play out between the United States and the United Kingdom. But people also have a lot of family connections. And one example of that, my dad's only siblings live in London, my two aunties from my Iranian side. So... How does family fit into this story? I think those family connections can actually make things resonate more here, uh, Mm -hmm. things that happen in the States. So I'll give you an example. Just working as a reporter here over the past four years, I've met lots of people who have relatives in the States. And when I'm actually in Parliament and talking to members there, they often want to talk to me because I'm with NPR and they figure, well, maybe their, you know, their family members back in the States are going to hear them on a local radio station. <laughs> um, and, and so yeah. what happens in the States, particularly something as dramatic as the killing of George Floyd, can feel a little more personal here. Now, I'll give you an example. Marvin Reese, he's the mayor of Bristol I was mentioning earlier. He has cousins in L.A. and Atlanta, and most of his family in the States actually live in Silver Spring, just outside D.C., I've got more Jamaican family I know who are Americans than British. <laughs> Many of my black family, because I'm mixed race, are actually what, what they call Jamaicans. So just for context, Frank, what percentage of Britons are black? You know, Gene, most Americans, the first place they go is London, and it is incredibly diverse, cosmopolitan, but it's not representative of the rest of the UK. In the last national census, only about 3% of, of people in Britain are, are actually black. Mm-hmm. And you compare that to the states where black people make up um, more than 13%. I have to admit, it's true, I am one of those Americans that's only familiar with London, and that statistic floors me. It yeah. shocks me. <laughs> so, yeah, my now wife and I, we got engaged in London. We were walking around, walking on bricks, and I was like, oh, this feels like Bed-Stuy. It was like mad black people everywhere. And then we got out of the city, and we went to the Cotswolds, and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Very different. It was like we got to see how much of an outlier London was in that regard. It is. I mean, when I was uh, covering Brexit, when I first got here, I started off, of course, in London, then headed into England. And, and London is a different country, really, mm. than the rest of, of England, for sure. Hmm. All right. So the UK is overwhelmingly white. Uh, how has that affected the way Britons talk about or, or maybe don't talk at all about their role in slavery? Well, there's, there's been criticism over the years that 
slavery and, and a lot of other aspects of British history um, have been largely airbrushed. And that's kind of what drove the argument over the Colston statue. Um, you know, the Royal African Company shipped enslaved people to the Caribbean for mass farming. Um, the slave history also here is a little easier to ignore because unlike in the U.S., you don't have big plantation houses like you'd see in the South. Mm -hmm. So it's just not, mm -hmm. it's not visible in the same way. Now, I, I, I will say there is more scholarship on the slave economy. Uh, University College London has this British slave ownership database, and it shows that famous companies here, including Lloyd's of London, the, the insurer, Green King, mm -hmm. that's one of the largest pub chains in, in the UK, how they profited from the slave trade. And in June, it wasn't long after Colston's statue went down, those companies issued public apologies and pledged to invest in minority communities. It sounds like pulling down this Colston statue had consequences, ramifications well beyond Bristol, where you are. Have statues come down in other places? Yes, uh, Gene, other statues have come down. I was recently at the Old London Docks. There's a very good museum exhibit, incidentally, on the, the slave trade there and how London profited from it. Hmm. And out front, there used to be this statue of a guy named Robert Milligan. He was a slave trader. He owned more than 500 enslaved people in Jamaica. Now that pedestal sits empty now within about a week or so, I think, of the Colston statue coming down. Local officials took that one down, and then it's gone beyond that. Um, so there was at least one protester who later on went down to Parliament Square where there's a famous statue of Winston Churchill, and he, he spray painted on the pedestal that Churchill was a racist. Now, the truth mm -hmm. be told, that's absolutely true. Any historian will tell you that if you look at the things that Churchill said and wrote. That, said, though, you know, Churchill's a national icon here. Uh, he, he may be the most famous and most revered Briton in the history of the country. And so a lot of people were angered by that. There were a lot of white people who came down, some of them soccer hooligans, some of them just patriotic, uh, to defend that statue. And they ended up being counter-protests and fistfights in Trafalgar Square between some white protesters and black protesters. Wow. So it sounds like there was a lot of tension over defacing the Churchill statue. A lot of people thought, hey, 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 that's going too far, which yeah, reminds definitely. me of how things work here in the United States. Mm -hmm. You can possibly remove statues of slavers in the abstract, but then people start getting a little uncomfortable when you say, well, how about these founding fathers? Or how about these presidents? People are like, oh, I don't know if we should take down those statues. <laughs> so It's exactly did, the same. Oh, is it? Yeah. How that's, did people it, feel about pulling this Edward Colston statue down? Is that how it, it broke down those well, that lines? Well, that was easier because people, most people were not emotionally invested and historically invested in Edward Colston. Hmm. He was not that well known. Frankly, a lot of people would have passed this uh, pedestal and not actually have known even who he was. Mm -hmm. But mm. it really, I think it depended on where you were as to how people responded to this. There was a reader poll in the Bristol Post that found like 60% of people were glad the protesters pulled it down. But nationally, you got a different perspective. Um, Bristol is a multicultural city. It's politically liberal. But as we were talking earlier, other parts of a lot of the rest of the UK is different. And there was a YouGov poll that found about half the people did want it removed but most of them disagreed with the way that it was done. And, and there were also some people here in Bristol who thought pulling down the statue, they were against it. And it wasn't, from their perspective, really a response to the killing of George Floyd. They thought it was political opportunism. I went to a white working class pub uh, not very far from here. And I talked to the owner, his name's Duncan Smith. And he's, he's no fan of Colston, uh, but he was really against the protesters pulling down the statue earlier this summer. 
what happened then, I found initially outrageous. People couldn't believe that there was a protest of 10,000 people in Bristol because of something that happened in Minnesota 4,000 miles away. Now, Duncan says he was repulsed by the video of George Floyd's killing, but he, he says honestly, from his perspective, he just doesn't see how it connects with this city. As far as I can see, the incident there was dealt with promptly and justly. The guy was charged with murder. It was a horrific crime. It was outrageous. But to take that across the Atlantic, that's where the logic stops for me. To develop into a mob and protest in this country for the way the police behaved in one incident in Minnesota is completely illogical to me. It's barmy. There are thousands and thousands of protesters that I've been around who would completely disagree with that. And I bet those protesters have something to say about how black people in particular get treated by the police in the UK. I looked into this. 13 black people have died in police custody in the last decade. Um, and black people are more than twice as likely as white people to die in custody. Uh, when you talk to people at protests, they know the names of these people and they talk about the cases. But it's nothing like the number of cases that we've seen captured on video in the U.S. And, and for one thing, and I just can't, over, I can't overstate this, cops here don't carry guns. British citizens have no right to own a gun. It's a privilege. And so you don't see that kind of violence. Um, mm. That said, when you go to the protests, you do hear a lot of black people who feel, I mean, they distrust the, the police. And there was a recent poll in which four out of five black people surveyed thought cops were biased against them. And so that, along with the killing of George Floyd, brought a lot of people out in the streets here in Bristol as well as in London. And, and, and I got to say, if you talk to cops, they, some of them definitely will say they see a problem too. Hmm. So welcome to Trinity Road Police Station. Thank you. So I caught up with Superintendent Andy Bennett. He's Bristol's police commander. He's a white guy, uh, and he's thought about this a fair bit. The black community still feel a sense of inequality. Inequality around issues of poverty, job opportunity, progression, income, etc. Educational outcomes. Black communities are disproportionately stop and search, have disproportionate number of arrests, disproportionate number of black young men are in prison. Just listening to what he says there, it's kind of hard to imagine uh, a police commander, a police, you know, a police official in the U.S. saying those same things. So what kind of numbers are we talking about, Frank, that, well, that the commander's referencing here? Yeah, well, I'll just give you one that I think is really stark and, and certainly hit me. And that is black people are nearly 10 times more likely to be stopped by police than white people. Damn. And that figure is from exactly. And that figure is from the U.K. government. Um, and Andy explains how, how he thinks this all adds up. You take that context and the fact that we have had some of our own high-profile uh, deaths of, of, of black young people, not frequently, thank you, but we still have, you know, deaths in custody that need to be investigated. So we can see that in England, we, we can't say we're better than anyone else. These are familiar tensions. Uh, here in the U.S., though, we also have data that show police violence against Latinos is disproportionately high. And there's a very long history here. Is this a problem for other communities of color in the U.K.? I'm thinking about Muslims from yeah. South Asian, North African or Middle Eastern backgrounds. Are they policed differently? 
They are. I, I would say probably not to the, not to the extent that black people are are being policed. Um, but I'll give you an example. Um, unfortunately, one of my jobs here uh, over the last few years has been to cover terror attacks in London and elsewhere. And certainly during those times, there was a lot of pressure and a lot of focus on people of South Asian descent. Um, and South Asians statistically are more likely to be stopped by police, but not to the extent that black people are. Got it. So we're here talking about the similarities between the UK and the US, besides one big one, which you mentioned, police do not carry guns in the mm -hmm. UK. That's huge. Uh, what other differences are there in policing? Well, you know, the approach to policing is very distinct. And this really struck me having covered cops in the United States as a reporter. In the UK, the cops, quote, they have this phrase, it's called police by consent. Policing by consent. That's a huge cultural difference between British and American police. Yeah, uh, this is Lawrence Sherman. He grew up in the States, but he works here at the University of Cambridge. He runs their police executive program, and he explained it like this. It really boils down to having a philosophy that says the most important thing is not to enforce the law at all times. The most important thing is to keep the peace and minimize the amount of harm and injury to anybody in our society. So the whole idea of policing by consent actually as a concept, it drove the founding of the modern police force here in the early 1800s, and it came out of a massacre in which the military actually killed a bunch of people who were protesting for the right to vote. And policing by consent is one of the reasons we didn't see anywhere near the violence with protests here that we saw in the States when they began back in June. Now, Andy Bennett, the police commander, on the day that the Colston statue came down, he was out on the streets and he didn't have a baton, no pepper spray, explicitly not trying to provoke the protesters. From the moment we saw people mount the statue to the moment when it hit the ground was just short of two minutes. And we could not, even if we had wanted to, we could not have responded in time to prevent that being toppled. Now, Andy says the police, they never considered trying to save the statue. In the back of my mind and the commander's mind was, what might this then look like that you then have 20 or 30 cops creating a circle around a bronze statue of Colston on the floor, and we spend the rest of the afternoon protecting it. And, and Andy, when you talk to him, he says the goal at that time was not to follow the letter of the law, but to prioritize public safety and avoid a clash with protesters. When we talk about policing by consent, in England, we can only hope to police and police well if we have the majority of the public on our side understanding and seeing the way that we police and we are seen to be fair. What we got to decide is when we chose to uphold that law and we decided that the public peace, the Queen's peace as we call it in England, was more important than one statue. That is clearly much less adversarial than the posture that, you know, police in the U.S. have. Obviously, the cops here in the States are heavily armed. Um, and the idea that you would let someone who you thought was committing a crime or doing something wrong go away flies in the face of even most, more recent news, right? Like Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times as he was walking away from the police. The idea that the police have discretion even there to use force, even deadly force, is like part of the way that police in the U.S. operate. And didn't President Trump send law enforcement out to protect monuments and statues here in the United States? This sounds... 100% different than what I'm hearing yes. happens in the UK. Well, it was the exact, I mean, 
the superintendent here took a totally different approach. The only thing time I've ever seen them sort of defend a monument was that Churchill statue I was talking about. They actually built a box around it, but they didn't surround it themselves. I mean, they just, and they put some fencing around it, but they tried to make sure that they didn't seem to be the defenders of it and they covered it up so that it actually wouldn't have that symbolic draw and political hmm. draw. Wow. Interesting. Hmm. Okay, so boxing up the statue of Winston Churchill, that happened in London. But in Bristol, where you are, are the people there just cool with the police standing around and not intervening? No, no, no. There, there definitely have been objections. And there was a pretty sizable backlash against Andy, the superintendent. Among the critics was Duncan Smith, that, that pub owner. It seemed to me that they were nearly complicit. I don't think that descends into anarchy as the mayor has suggested, as the policeman has suggested. It's how I would deal with a violent issue in the pub. They were aware of how it would look if they were to stop the protesters. And I think they were cautious and scared. So when it comes to cops, one thing that seems to unite British people is they'd much rather deal with British cops than American ones. Marvin Reese, the Bristol mayor, he's mixed race. His uh, father came from Jamaica, his mother's white British. He's lived in D.C., he's lived in Philadelphia. And he says when he's been in the States, he gave one example, a cop threatened to arrest him for jaywalking. Another time, a cop pulled him over after his wife, who's white and from Boston, drove diagonally through an empty parking lot at night at a gas station in New Jersey. So Marvin told me after these things happened to him, he decided to change how he behaved in the States. I was just been elected mayor of Bristol and, and I was in New York and I was looking for our consulate, our, our British consulate, and I couldn't find it. I had my suit on, I had a tie on. So Marvin, he spots a cop in a squad car in front of him. And then I made a decision not to approach him from the rear. I made the decision to walk in the road and approach him from the front. And as I was walking over, I was thinking, I need to speak because then you'll know I'm British. I'm not African-American. So one is I made the calculation that he's going to perceive me as a threat. The other one is I knew I needed to speak English. I needed, needed to hear my English accent. And I got back to my wife and I just thought, I said to her, is that what it means to be white? This contrast in policing styles is driven definitely in part by gun ownership in the States. You know, in the U.S. last year, 44 police killed by firearms. Here in the U.K., I was looking online. I had to go back to 2012 to find a case where a police officer was shot to death. Uh, and policing is not in the top 10 most dangerous jobs in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, those jobs include logging, fishing, uh, being a pilot, uh, being one of those other people who work very near planes. Those are very, very dangerous jobs, and policing is not up there in that top 10. Even though police get a lot of attention for the supposed dangers of the job, it's also worth talking about the way that in the United States, policing has served like a primary function of it has been as custodians of segregation, right? As, of like making sure that black people and Latino people were not in the wrong neighborhoods or not going into the wrong places. So there's also just the unwritten understanding that in the United States, a very real function of the police is to be, you know, the custodians of segregation, right? It's understood that black people, Latino people get stopped by the police whether they're driving or whether they're walking down the street in neighborhoods where they're seen as not belonging. And that's like a very, that's another adversarial layer that's built into American policing that may not be true in the same way in the UK. You do see some of that, not, I don't think to the extent that you see it in the States, but there have been recent cases, and one of, one of these people was a member of parliament, 
who was stopped by cops in, uh, I want to say, North London, uh, in a place where mm-hmm. there had been a lot of knife crime. And she was furious and, and videotaped it. So definitely, I mean, in the last couple of months, we've definitely had some of those cases in London. Hmm. Well, let's look ahead. Where Where is that statue of Edward Colston now? Last I saw, it was being pushed into a harbor. <laughs> yeah, so a few days later, they hauled it out of the water. It Last I saw, it was sitting in a shed. They plan to put it in a museum, and the spray paint is going to stay. <laughs> I like that touch. No, I, I think it's going to be a much more interesting statue than it was when it was sitting up here on the pedestal. Has this changed the conversation in Bristol or in the wider UK about slavery, about racism? What has the impact of all this been? It was really interesting. I think after the statue came down, one of the things we saw is people voluntarily taking down the name of Colston. People had been resisting for years. And so Colston Tower right behind me, those letters came down. Um, We've seen people painting over Colston Road and street signs and things like Mm. that. And and so what I found really interesting about that is all this resistance. And then when the statue came down, Shireen, it was like a dam break. I mean, it was definitely a turning point. Langford with NPR. Sorry we're late. Not at all. How are you? This is nice, so to see you. nice to see you. Come on nice in. To meet right? you. So I went over to see Dan Tyndall. He's the vicar at St. Mary Redcliffe. And, and Dan takes us into this parish church, and it doesn't look like a church to me. It has a soaring nave. It looks more like a cathedral. And after the Colston statue came down, the church removed four panels of stained glass uh, from one of the windows. And the panels com- contain Colston's name as well as his motto which was, Go and do thou likewise, which is from the story of the Good Samaritan. <laughs> Speaking of, you know, incredible contrast. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Seriously. Yeah. No, I mean, I know, and I, I, was, I asked Dan about that. I said, like, what did it actually say? I was like, wow, I can see why people would be offended. But, you know, getting rid of those panels may not be enough to actually satisfy everybody. The whole thing was dedicated to Colston. So there is a big question as to whether the whole window should come out. That's a huge stained glass window. You see my problem? I do see your problem. <laughs> it's like six stories, at least seven stories high, right? It's not just my problem, because there are churches up and down the land with memorials to slave traders and other issues that we really should not be memorializing. Is there pressure to take the whole thing down? Oh, yeah. And from another quarter, there is pressure not to take the whole thing down and to help us tell the whole history of who Colston was and why there's a window here to him. But if we did that in all our churches up and down the land, the churches would be full of interpretation about where our past is. Now, Dan Tendall says it it would cost roughly $27,000 just to remove the window and a lot more to replace it. We have a challenge as to what to do about our past, but we also have the challenge of what to do about things that, on our, that are in the shadow of this church, literally. The parish that we serve is one of the poorest in the country. And especially as, as the COVID epidemic kind of subsides and we know the economic fallout of that is going to be enormous in terms of uh, lost jobs, lost opportunities, and a loss of income. So we're going to be faced with the challenge of sorting out our history and sorting out uh, how we can help people in, the, in the, this day and age now with not having enough to eat. And which do you think is more impressive and more important from your perspective? 
I'd have to go for the people first. But I say that with a heavy heart, because I know that some of the black people in this city would challenge me hard on the importance of that statue and the pain that that statue held for them every time they walked past it. And you know, while the Mayor's Commission is gonna look at the portrayal of history here, there are, you know, frankly, much deeper problems. I mean, for instance, the Runnymede Trust, it's a UK race equality think tank, they found black people in Bristol suffered the third highest level of educational inequality in all of England and Wales. And that's the sort of thing Reese thinks society really needs to focus on. My concern about symbolic acts is they're more often about the emotional uh, gratification of members of oppressor groups, if I can term it like that, than they are about the status of oppressed groups. Because they make, to be perfectly frank, kind of, you know, politically progressive woke people feel much more comfortable about themselves because they engaged in a ceremony without having to touch their bank accounts and look at um, economic and political power. Why can't it be both? Why can't both things happen? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, think they, I think they both can happen. I think one is much easier than... Well, actually, they're both kind of hard. I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, it's one thing to take down the statues and the names. What, what replaces them? And what kind of a consensus do you get in the city? Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. I think they're both challenging. Um, it is harder to get people to give up money, economic and political power. That's asking more of them. Mm-hmm. But, 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 you know, sorting this all out, I mean, navigating history, finding solutions to all of this is going to be tricky. There is still division in Bristol, including here at the pedestal. Um, in July, a London artist had a new statue hoisted up here before dawn. It depicted a protester with her fist raised in a black power salute. The local government did not authorize it. And so when we heard about this, Sophie and I, we jumped on the trains and we raced up to Bristol. I care where that statue came from. So when we get here, uh, we see a guy named Dre Salvini. He's a middle-aged white guy, and he's arguing with a crowd of mostly young black people. And Dre says the statue should come down. And, and once again, this pedestal, this area, it's a battleground for politics, race, and power in the city. And, and there's a man in the crowd, and he asks Dre this. Apparently, you stood here as a form of protest. Yeah, no, I am, yeah. So could you not say that pulling down the statue is a form of protest? No, I'd say that's an act of vandalism. I would say that's an act of vandalism. Am I pulling down the statue? No. I would say pulling down the statue is vandalism. Now, Dre tells me he's got nothing against the new statue. It looks nice. I just don't like the way it's been erected. I don't like the way it's been done behind our back. Then a friend of Dre's, guy, guy's named Roy Banks, he worked at the port here, he chimes in. What they've done today is created more tension in the city. 100%. And he should have done this. And there's another guy, Mohammed Adid, a student here in Bristol, and he gets involved in the conversation. And what comes next is like a 20-minute debate over racial history and the democratic process. <laughs> and I asked Adid, which, I mean, there was a lot of debate. It was actually, for a journalist, it was like a great place to be. I bet. Because you had everybody mm-hmm. talking and debating right in front of this, this pedestal with a new, a new image, which had completely different symbolism. Yeah. Um, and when I was talking to Adid, I asked him about this new statue. I think it's beautiful. I think it stands for so much that Bristol has needed. Um, I think it finally, it find, when, I, when I walked past it today, I finally felt like I'm, there's not a direct insult to my humanity, to my life. Now the next morning, government workers unbolt the statue, they take it down, and once again, as it is right now, the pedestal's empty. Do you know what happened to that statue of the protester and what 
is going to take its place, if anything? Uh, the government told the sculptor he could pick it up or donate it to the city's collection. Uh, and, and any decision on what goes here next is going to be a deliberative process for sure. Now, now, Marvin Reese, the mayor, he says what he'd like to see is a memorial to people who stood up for the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed, people that he calls Bristol's true heroes. And he said uh, the empty pedestal right now is appropriate for Bristol at this moment in its history because it's a powerful symbol of a city uh, at, at a crossroads. Hmm. Well, Frank Langford is NPR's UK correspondent. Frank, thank you so much for bringing us this fascinating story. Thanks, Shermina. It was great. I really enjoyed it. All right, y'all, that's our show. Before we go, though, we want to hear from you. So please get at us on Twitter at NPR Code Switch. Subscribe to our newsletter by going to npr.org slash newsletters. This episode was produced by Sophie Easta, Jessica Beck, and Leah Danella. It was edited by Steve Drummond. And a shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Jess Kung, Kumari Devarajan, Natalie Escobar, Alyssa Jong-Perry, and L.A. Johnson. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Bezio. Peace. The way things are going right now, even if you can keep track of what's happening in the news, it's hard to know why it's happening or what it really means. That's why we have created a daily podcast that answers your questions about the news in about 10 minutes every weekday. It's called Consider This. New episodes every weekday afternoon from NPR.